And for the rest of you, we're going to be continuing our special Christmas sermon series that we're calling Practicing the Stories of Christmas. Practicing the Stories of Christmas. And the reason I said I'm calling it that is because very often what the celebration of Christmas sort of devolves into is merely nostalgia. It becomes merely looking back on the past, whether that's past biblical history or for many people what's even more intense and real, which is personal history. Christmas for many people becomes not so much the memory of what God is doing in the world to reconcile sinners to himself, but it becomes the story of my parents, my children, uh, our economic situation, my health, those who are celebrating with me this year, those who are not celebrating with me this year. And it's very interesting because in theory, I think the celebration of Christmas can be a powerful time of worship. I actually find that very often it does the opposite. That very often, quite ironically, the celebration of Christmas causes people, including Christians and churchgoers, to focus even more intently on things of this world. And so I think it's important that if we're going to celebrate Christmas, and I would remind you there's no command in Scripture that we have to. I, I can make a biblical argument that I, I think it's good at the very least. If, if not, maybe we should. But if we're going to do it, certainly it ought to be done for the right reasons. They should be biblical reasons. They should be theological reasons. And so really for us Christians, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, it's a special season of worship in which we are involving ourselves through celebratory practices deeper and deeper into the story of what God is doing in the world. And so I don't want to just say theological truths, although I'm certainly going to do that. We're going to talk about the past, although that's not, the point is not to talk about the past in order to leave it there. We are talking about the past so that we can be transformed in the present and prepared for the future that God has for each one of us. So I'm calling this series Practicing the Stories of Christmas. I'm inviting you into a season of change. Not just a season of fun and celebration and nostalgia. I'm actually inviting you into a powerful season of worshipful change. Now, what I've chosen to do is to zoom in on just a few particular stories that are probably quite familiar to most of you, um, but maybe the angle is a little bit different. So what I chose to do is to look at the four angelic annunciations. There's four angelic annunciations made in the Christmas story. And those are recorded in Matthew and Luke. Three in Luke, one in Matthew. And what I was thinking about when I was pondering these passages is how there's, there's one gospel Christmas story that everyone is a part of. But each of these four individuals or groups are in a different place in life. They're in different seasons of life. They've got different things going on. They've got different concerns, much like the situation of this service this morning. I'm going to give you one message. It's the message for all of you. I don't have a different one for you and you and you and you. But where you're at right now when you walk in is not the same necessarily as that of your neighbor. 
And so I, I think we want to acknowledge that Christmas can be a very different experience for each one of us, including different from perhaps our very own experiences of Christmas past. And so last week we began by looking at chronologically what was the first angelic annunciation, and that was the annunciation to Zachariah or Zacharias, depending on the spelling. It can actually be either. So we looked at him, and this week we're looking at the angelic annunciation to Mary. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I'll also have the passage up on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Please follow along with me now as I read God's word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this might be. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and I just pray that you would open up our hearts this morning. Lord, I know that there, there's no words I can say, no clever way of arranging them that can ever permeate the hardness of a human heart. But I believe your word is a living word. I believe your word is spirit. I believe your word is sharper, as Hebrews says, than any two-edged sword able to pierce between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So I pray you would open up our hearts by your power this morning. I pray by opening up our hearts, you would reveal through your word who we are, where we are, what about us you want to commend and affirm, 
and what about us you want us to repent of, to move away from, to change. And I pray that you would draw us to you, that this Christmas we would experience the very point of it all, which is to receive the gift of your presence. So may your presence be felt among us. May you preach Christ through my words. May the Spirit give us life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So again, calling it Practicing the Stories of Christmas, looking at these different stories and pulling from them, not just talking about, oh, hey, this happened to Zechariah, this happened to Mary, this happened to Joseph, this happened to the angels. Oh, isn't that nice Christian history? Stories that we tell. There are stories that are meant to change our lives. And so that's the invitation this morning. And so I have four points that I want to share based on this text of Scripture. And at the risk of being just slightly longer, I know it's probably a little more catchy if I just have little brief phrases, but I have two sentences for each point. The one is grounded in biblical fact or biblical truth. And the second sentence is how you can respond to that biblical truth. And I I think it is important to state both clearly. So here's my first point. The Lord works in seasons, and the rains of blessing often follow the droughts of difficulty. So discern your present season and envision what faithfulness looks like in this season. First of all, the Christmas story in the New Testament, if you pick up in the Gospels. All of a sudden, what you have is an explosion of dynamic spiritual activity, an absolute explosion of it. First of all, you have John the Baptist and you have the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. So first of all, when Elizabeth is said to be past the age of childbearing, um, and then an angel comes, so angels don't appear that often in the Old Testament. They're they're there, but it's actually relatively infrequent. So all of a sudden you see an angel on the scene, and you see angels appearing repeatedly over and over, and then you have this story of a barren woman, old in age, having a child. Now that, of course, is meant to hearken back to one of the great stories of Israel, which is the story of Abraham and Sarah. That Sarah two was past the age of childbearing. And this was one of the ways that the covenant God would prove himself to Abraham, that he would show his power and might. And so we see this activity of God all over again. And you think, well, this will be the climax, right? Because this points back to Abraham, and we know how big of a deal that was. But the story of Mary and Joseph something unprecedented happens. Something greater than ever happened in Israel. And that is that a child would be born of a virgin. God simply went beyond that which was very difficult, a woman who's past the age of supposedly being able to, to give birth through a woman who had never known a man. And of course, that word known is a Hebrew idiom for sexual activity. So having no sexual activity at all, being a virgin, she is going to give birth. So there's this explosion of dynamic spiritual activity. 
It's a season of God's mighty moving. But it was preceded by 400 years of silence. The time between the last Old Testament prophet and the New Testament explosion of angelic visitation and prophets and the Messiah and all and healings and miracles and all that was 400 years. God tends to work in seasons. I think a lot of people have trouble these days discerning that fact that God works in seasons and that every season that God puts us through is necessary for our spiritual development. If you look back at one of the famous stories of Israel, you'll see that seasons, both ones that we would say are pleasant as well as the ones we find unpleasant, both play a vital role in the economy of God. One of the great stories that illustrates this for us, of course, is the story of Joseph. In the story of Joseph, one of the ways that God raises Joseph up to the pinnacle of Egypt was through a season of plenty. He revealed to Joseph, there's going to be a season of plenty. You're going to have grain and food coming out of your ears. But you need to know what to do with that season. What is this season of abundance about? Is it going to last forever? Is it for me to do what I want with what God's given me? That, that's what it's about? Oh, God's giving me abundance. I guess I don't owe God anything. I can just do what I want. No, Joseph knew that even in a season of abundance, he was under obligation to God. And part of what was revealed also is that season would radically change. And the seasons of plenty would be followed by a season of famine. But in that story, it was through that season of famine that God would raise Joseph up because it was through that, it was through the fact that everyone else had not planned for that, that they were coming to Joseph and Joseph was buying all the properties and so Pharaoh is blessed because of Joseph and that is raising Joseph up in the eyes of everyone. God established Joseph both through the seasons of plenty and the seasons of famine. God works in seasons. This season of dynamic spiritual activity, the fulfillment of God's great promises to Israel was preceded by a season of silence. In Jewish tradition, and they acknowledge us in the study of the formation of the Hebrew canon, bears this out as of a process as it actually was. But nevertheless, one of the things that it seemed to be agreed upon in the Jewish community of the pre-Christian era is that no prophet spoke. There were Jewish writings. We call them Second Temple Judaism writings or uh, apocalyptic writings, the Qumran literature. But everyone acknowledged none of these are, from, these are not words from God. These are simply our reflections in our religious community on our situation. But we all acknowledge these are not God's words. God is silent. And so what we're seeing in this text is a change of seasons. There was a purpose for God not speaking. But here in this text, as the angels speak, 
repeatedly as Mary is promised to be the vehicle through which God will fulfill his greatest promise to the world, which was not to Moses and Israel at Sinai, but to the human race in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the season had come for God to fulfill those promises. So the Lord works in seasons. And I would encourage you to take the time to be aware and reflect on what is your present season. What is it? Don't be ignorant. Don't act like it's always going to be this way. Whether you're in an enjoyable season, whether it's a painful one, one of the mistakes we often make, and, and it can feel like that. I understand why. It can feel this way when you're there. It's always going to be this way. If you're riding the wave of success, and I've had friends share me, the, I, don't, I don't know what that's like, is riding an ever, you know, ever upward wave of success where everything they did, they had the Midas touch. Every business venture exploded. Everything they did for God exploded. Every human, oh, you know, they got married. They never had a problem ever, you know. It was just on who loves each, who loves you more? Oh, I do. No, you do. (laughs) What a problem. You know, it's like, that's their problem. And they think that's going to last forever. And it doesn't. Other people, it's like, I, man, just one thing wrong after the other. That seems to be the story of my life. It's always going to be this way. No, it's not. It's a season. It has a beginning. And it has an end. What you need to do is discern what it's for. Why does God have you in this season? What does, and I use this word, envision. I think it is good to use our imaginations. Envision what faithfulness looks like in this season. Some of us can beat ourselves up. You know, for example, if you were physically, let's say, you were able to do a lot for the Lord. You were able to travel the world and start churches in other sides of the world and be a missionary to foreign countries and all that. And then you get physically sick. And you can no longer travel, not just outside the country to these mission fields, but down the street to the grocery store. And you can beat yourself up because you remember, but there was a season and, and you're, you're trying to, you're, you're thinking faithfulness in this season is what it was in another season. And it's not. It could be financially. Like, I remember when I, I could do this and I could do this and I could do this. And the season has changed. And, and now you can't. And now... You need help. You were helping others, and now you need help. And you beat yourself up because you think faithfulness in this season ought to look like what it did in another season. I just want to encourage you. You are all in a season. It has a beginning and an end, foreordained by God. You are not sovereign. You are not in charge. You do not run the world. You do not control the economy. You do not get to decide who gets cancer and who doesn't. You don't decide that. 
What you have to decide is will you be faithful in this season? That is what God has given to you. So discern your present season and envision what faithfulness looks like now. Number two, genuine faith desires God's glory more than personal comfort. So surrender that which you cannot keep in order to gain that which you cannot lose. Now, when the angel speaks to Mary, again, in our nostalgic way of telling these stories where you know, it's, it's fluffy feelings and, and it's not critical engagement, we act like this is really good news to Mary. But if you think about it for a moment, it's not really, well, it's good news, but it's bad news at the same time. I hope you know what I'm getting at. So let's say you're engaged, right? You're engaged. You're not married yet, you're engaged. And your wedding is tomorrow. It's the next day. Your wedding's going to be tomorrow. You're in love, butterflies and all that. And the groom's waiting up in the front. And everyone stands as the bride comes on down. And all of a sudden, everybody's jaws drop, but none lower than the groom. When he sees a nice, big, round belly. And he knows that wasn't me. Mary is an engaged woman. Actually, she's betrothed, which is, it's, it's married, but without all the, the rights and privileges, including sexual activity. So it's, it was stronger than engagement today. It was like it, but it was stronger. In order to break a betrothal, you would actually have to get divorced. Okay? So she's engaged to be married. And she's just been told, you are now going to be pregnant, and it won't be by the guy you're marrying. Now, it doesn't take a genius or even much time and reflection to figure out this could ruin my marriage. Wait a minute. So there's good news. The good news is, guess what, Mike? Guess what, Tom? Guess what? I'm going to bless the world through you. Countless people are going to be blessed. God's going to do amazing things, and you'll have rewards in heaven. And you're like, awesome but I'm going to ruin your personal life. <laughs> Let's be honest, oh people of great faith. How many of you will jump for that? How many of you, if an angel came to you and said, I will use you to change the lives of thousands for the kingdom, but you will lose your marriage as a result. Your husband or wife will divorce you. Your children will leave you. Those that are nearest and dearest will be adversely affected. Oh, but, uh, but thousands of people you've never met all change their lives. I think this is a very, very difficult thing that is happening here. And this is not even to add what would later come to light, of course, which is that, again, Mary, though she, she has some idea that, yes, it's the Messiah, but a thing she doesn't get, and that comes out in the narrative. When Jesus is 12 years old and he's at the temple and, and they had left and they're like, wait a minute, where's Jesus? And they go back to get him and then he says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? They didn't go, oh, yes, of course. They were like, what in the world are you talking about? They didn't understand. 
Simeon would later prophesy over the child Jesus, and he said to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart. As a result of having this child, a dagger, your heart will be torn out of your chest. What you're going to get is problems in your immediate betrothal and marriage, and this will tear your heart out. In the Protestant world, where many have consciously reacted to what they perceive Catholics believe about Mary, whether this is fair or not, some would say yes, some would say no, but there's the perceived idea that Mary is worshipped that she's lifted up to a place that robs Jesus of his glory and is not rooted in biblical truth. So that's kind of a general Protestant concern. Without getting into all the details of that, I just want to say this. One of the things we always have to make sure we're careful of when we react to something is that we're not overreacting in the other direction. So some Protestants want to come in, oh, we want to make sure Mary isn't worshipped and all this and that, but then they don't give her the due respect and attention and appreciation that she deserves. And I think part of that we see right here. She was an amazing woman. How many of us would say, let it be to me according to your word, after you've been told your dearest relationship will be jeopardized and your heart will be ripped out of your chest? but God will bless a bunch of other people. She says, let it be to me according to your word. What I see in Mary here that we're meant to model is that genuine faith desires God's glory more than personal comfort. I think this is why true faith, and I'm not talking about churchgoers and being a religious consumer, which we have plenty of in America. We got plenty, maybe more than anywhere else. But in terms of true, genuine, biblical faith, how many of us desire God's glory more than our personal comfort? I think we largely in America have a gospel of personal comfort. We even have names for it. We can call it the health and wealth doctrine or the prosperity gospel. We actually change the words of Jesus so that people on TV will tell people, hey, if you come forward to Jesus, you'll be rich. Oh, and if if you have sickness right now, if any of you are sick, if your daughter has Crohn's disease or you have cancer or whatever, if you just believe enough, it'll all be gone. We have a gospel of personal comfort. But what we see with Mary is that she chose God's glory over personal comfort. What we don't see is, whoa, 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 wait a minute, angel. Wait a minute. So, like, me and Joseph, like, we got this thing going. You know, we, we, we rode the Ferris wheel last week, and all oh, the way he proposed, we went down to Newport Beach, and we went on the gondolas, and, and Joseph had Dean Martin on in the background, and he got down on one knee, and oh, you should see that bling when he opened up that box. Oh, angel, you should have seen that, that diamond. It was amazing. And wait a minute, you're saying you're going to mess that up? No. No, sorry, not doing it. Go, go find somebody else. There's got to be another young woman you can find who can bear the Savior of the world because that kind of messes with my, my thing I got going on right now. Let it be to me according to your word. 
Mary models for us a desire that God's glory be done. And that's something that as I look at this, I, I want to say yes to that. But I feel a resistance, don't you? That if God were to say, I can take your life right now, if you were willing to sacrifice, if you were willing to go without some personal comfort, I could radically change lives. You could store up treasure in heaven that you'll never lose. And that's why I paraphrased the late missionary Jim Elliott, who said he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The personal comfort that we're hanging on, you can't keep. Everything you have, you try to hold on to in this world, you are going to lose. The irony of life as well is it's not even having it, but you can have these things and yet lose the capacity to enjoy them. What good is a wonderful house and a wonderful car if, if you're in agony? Your back hurts so bad. You don't, there is no chair that feels good. There's none. Other people, someone you loved has torn your beating heart out of your chest. And it doesn't matter what other good thing happens to you. You can't enjoy it because of the pain of that loss. How many of us are willing to sacrifice things of this world that we cannot keep in order to gain that which we cannot lose? Mary modeled this faith, and it's faith we are meant to follow. Number three, it is not wrong to ask God questions if our questions proceed from trust. So make sincere questions a part of your prayer life. I touched on this last week, and this is sort of just the reverse side of it. If you look at the parallel accounts of the angel appearing to Zacharias, and then you look at the appearance to Mary, you'll notice that Mary's commended for her faith, and Zacharias is condemned for his lack of faith. On the surface, you're asking yourself, well, he asked a question. He just said, how will this be? My, my wife is... You know, how will this very, very difficult thing happen? Mary asks what seems to be kind of the same thing. How will this be? The issue is not the question, but the lack of belief. That's the difference. Even, even in the wording of this, what does it mean to question God? Are you questioning God? For some people, they have no problem questioning God's authority, and yet they wonder why God does not speak to them. If you're going to question God in that sense of I'm coming to God fundamentally from a place of unbelief, then I should not marvel that I hear no word from God. But the irony is there's some sincere believers who somehow, somewhere, got the idea that to even ask God a question is to question God. Or maybe it's more practical. If in the church community I ask a question, I'm like, well, you know, there's this accepted tradition, and, and I'm not, like, questioning it in, it like, a hostile sense, but I'm genuinely just not somebody who grew up in that, and so I haven't accepted it all my life, so I'm sincerely asking. This is not obvious to me. Why do you believe this? 
We shouldn't be hostile against questions. Questions, if they proceed from honesty, from sincerity, from faith, are to be welcomed. And so if it's coming from a place of faith, we're actually invited to ask God. In our prayer life, ask God what to do. If you don't know what to do about your job situation, about your physical health, about your family, about whatever it is that you're doing, your ministry, ask. Ask and you shall receive. We're invited into the throne room of God to ask Him. And I just find that many of us will ask everyone and everything, we'll Google it before we pray it. But Google and no one else knows the end from the beginning. Who has an eternal perspective. Who can not just tell you, well, hey, I think this is what happened a little bit in the past and think this is kind of what's going on. No one knows the future but God. And we have the opportunity to ask God, God, right now, I want to make this decision. It seems to be like it makes sense. I've done my due diligence. I've done my planning. But you alone know all things. So, Lord, I plan on doing this because this is what it looks like. But, Lord, if you want to say no, I want to invite you to do that. For many people in relationships, it's the same thing. It can seem like a good thing on the surface, but how many ask God? God, is this a good relationship for me to get into? But many people don't want to know. They don't want to ask God because they're afraid of the answer. But trust me, God's answers are always better than our alternatives. No matter what kinds of sacrifices we might have to make, God's answers, as hard as they might be, even if it's the answer we all dread, which is no, it's better because God loves us and he knows the end from the beginning. Lastly, the virgin birth reminds us that salvation is solely a work of God and not by anything we do. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Look again with me real quick just to verses 30 through 35. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. <clears throat> and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I don't know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. In contrast to Zacharias and Elizabeth, where what God does there is, yes, he intervenes, but he enables them to be involved. It is through Zacharias and Elizabeth's ordinary human relationship which will produce John the Baptist. But in Mary's case, in the case of Jesus, which is a picture of the gospel itself, God brings about a life without any human participation at all. That's, the virgin birth is 
it's doctrinally significant. It has nothing to do with Mary and Joseph and what they're doing or not doing. Very clearly, Joseph's not involved. Human sexual activity, by which human beings normally come into existence, is not involved. God is bypassing our participation, and he is bringing about life of his own. So it is with the gift of God. Salvation is not something we participate with. God's like, <clears throat> hey, you're a sinner, but you can't come to heaven unless you like, do better. So I'll tell you what. I'll pay half your bill. I'll cover half your sins. And then you spend the rest of your life paying for the other half. How's that? I'll pay half your bill. That would be human involvement. It's still gracious. God's offering to pay half the bill. But the gospel is, without you doing anything, without any good work you have ever done in your life, or ever will do, God is offering to birth new life in you. If you will believe on the one He has sent, Jesus Christ. If you will look to the God who makes the impossible possible. Human beings being born again is humanly impossible. The famous dialogue later between Jesus and Nicodemus brings this out. Jesus tells Nicodemus, one who was Jewish and, and knew the Scriptures, knew the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus looks at the obvious and he's like, so if I, and he's thinking from a human standpoint, okay, well, I've got to be involved because religion is about what I do to get to God. So I've got to be involved. And, and then he recognizes the impossibility of that. He goes, how can a man be born again when he's old? Shall he enter into his mother's? I mean, that's a bad picture, right? I mean, I've heard of big babies coming out, but an adult, you know, that, that would be, that's, that's a rough picture. He says, an old man cannot go back into his mother. This is, what is he saying? That's impossible. You can't be born again. And Jesus is basically saying, you're right. It is impossible for you to be born again of yourself. But with God, all things are possible. The very same thing the angel says here to Mary. With God, all things are possible. Through simply believing in what God has done. That Jesus is the one who came for you. That there's an impossible gulf between you and God. It's, it's not just slight. Like, you know, I'm a pretty good person. A lot of people, it's, it blows me away. Because many people still, still like to say America's a Christian nation. But when people are polled... And they're asked, you know, do non-Christians go to heaven? They're kind of like, well, if their good works kind of outweigh their bad. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity is. You're not saved by your goodness. You're not saved by anything you do. Because the gap between you and the living, holy, perfect God is infinite. It's impossible. The only way that gulf 
can be traversed is if God crosses it himself. And that's the story of Christmas. God has done that. The impossible reality of finite fallen human beings ever being right has been made possible because God Himself in Jesus Christ has come into the world. And it's simply by believing on Him that what God does is He births new life. And if you ask, well, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? That's that would be like, you know, Mary's like, okay, what do I got to do? Do me and Joseph, do we need to wait a little bit? And then we, we, you know, we, you know, then there's the conjugal visit, you know, all this. And then we, and, and then, and then, no. Simply believe by faith, just trusting in God and his word. And what God will do is birth new life in you. That's how the Christmas story is a picture of the gospel. So because we believe in a God who makes the impossible possible, I can say with the writer of Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Remember who you're following. I think we forget. It's true that like Zacharias and Elizabeth, many times in life, God involves us. But we miscalculate why. He doesn't involve us because He needs us. He does not. He involves us often because He loves us. And that which He gives us to do yokes us together to Him. Like a father and son working together in the garage. It's not that the father needs the help of a five-year-old on the car. Probably not very helpful. Probably just added three hours to your time in the garage. But that bonding time? Priceless. But we forget just because God often includes us because He wants to bond ourselves together with Him, sometimes we can think God needs us. The Christmas story reminds us that God does not need us. That God does not simply make the possible easier. He makes the impossible possible. And that is what we're celebrating this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you so much for this wonderful fact of history, which is a proof of your love and of your power and of your purpose. We thank you that you did not come into the world simply to make the possible easier, but to make the impossible possible. And so, Lord, I pray our prior understanding of you, our prior understanding of the gospel, the Christmas story, the plight of sinful man, in light of a holy God, I pray all of that would be transformed this morning in light of the truth of your word. And so in this time of response, I pray you would change us. That none of us would leave the same way that we came in. But that we would experience the nearness of Christ, God with us that we'd feel the empowering presence of the Spirit 
and trusting that no matter what our circumstances are, whether to our eyes we think we have much to lean on or nothing, that for all of us, our sufficiency is in you. All that we need for life and godliness is in you. The deepest desires of our hearts for love and acceptance and worth and security and value and meaning and purpose are not in family. They're not under the tree. They're not in anything this world can offer, but solely in what you offer to us in Jesus Christ. Grant us the faith to believe. Help our unbelief. Glorify your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.